Well, I'm talking this morning about what's trending now concerning life issues, and we are going to touch on some pretty heavy topics, things like abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. And I think there's a trend sometimes to think of those topics and issues as existing outside of the church, but that's not the reality. According to the Guttmacher Institute, 20% of women who have abortions identify as evangelical Christians. And so we know this is an issue right inside the church. And I'm keenly aware this morning that there are probably those of you who have had abortions or contributed to abortions. There may be some who have had loved ones commit suicide. You may even know someone who is considering euthanasia. And so when we broach these topics, it becomes very uncomfortable. It has the potential sometimes to generate guilt and shame. And so I think in the church, there's really this temptation to just avoid these topics altogether. And yet we serve a God who is the truth and who says the truth will set you free. And so I think there is benefit every so often to face the hard truths on these difficult topics, knowing that that can often be the pathway to our own liberation. And it really is in that spirit that I come to you tonight. And when we speak about life issues, obviously this is something that's relevant to all of us. All of us have been given life. I think we all know intuitively that life is a beautiful thing. It's a precious thing. And yet there are times when circumstances combine to make it feel like life is more of a burden than a blessing. I know this happened to me about 17 years ago. I got pregnant with our third child. And it wasn't that I didn't want a third child. I did very much. And so did my husband. But it was just really, really bad timing. You see, we were building a house. And when I say we were building a house, I don't mean we were contracting with someone else to build a house for us. I mean, we were building a house. I was general contracting the job. And my husband, who has a summer's free because he's a school teacher, he was doing a lot of the construction. And we were nearing the end, but we still had an awful lot on our punch list. And it was in the midst of this that I found out I was pregnant. And I just felt completely overwhelmed and felt like this was just going to push me over the edge. So I did the only thing I really knew to do at that point, and I just, I just got on my knees. I said, God, help me to feel the way that I should feel about this child, because quite frankly, right now, I don't feel like I want to have a baby. And over the next few weeks, the fear began to subside, and I began to slowly embrace this child that was growing within me. And then one morning I woke up and something completely unexpected happened. I started cramping and showing signs that I may be miscarrying. And so I called my doctor right away and I'm like, what's going on? Am I miscarrying? And I remember him saying to me, well, I don't know, but you will probably know in the next 24 to 48 hours. And sure enough, that evening I was sitting across the dinner table from my son Nathan, who was only five years old at the time. And I got these incredibly intense cramps, and I just knew in that, more, in that moment that I was miscarrying. And I just started to cry. And I remember my son looking at me. The first thing he says to me, Mom, do all moms cry? To which I said, yes, sweetheart. We all get sad. We all cry sometimes. He's like, well, why are you crying? And I figured it's probably best just to tell him the truth. I said, sweetheart, you know the baby that's growing inside mommy's belly, right? And he's like, yeah. I said, sweetie, I'm just getting these incredible cramps, and I just have a sense that I'm losing this baby. I'm afraid this baby's going to die. And I remember my five-year-old son, he got real quiet and pensive. He looked down for what was probably only a few seconds. It felt like an eternity. And then he lifted his head, and he looked me straight in the eyes. And he said, 
You know, Mom, God's the decider. And in that moment, it literally was like the Holy Spirit came down and spoke straight through the lips of my five-year-old son directly to my soul. And I knew in that moment that God was the decider, that God was sovereign, and he was in control. And even if this horrible thing happened that I was dreading, it would be okay. And it did happen. I miscarried, and over the subsequent years, I actually miscarried several times. About five years after, I actually gave birth, though, to a healthy baby girl who's just a joy and a delight to me. But as we're talking about what's trending concerning life issues, before I talk about that, I just want to talk about some biblical principles so we can have a biblical perspective on life. And the first principle is so simple that a five-year-old can communicate it. And that is that God's the decider. God is sovereign over all life and all death. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. You see, so often we think of life as a gift, and that's a decent way of describing it. However, a more biblical way of understanding life is that it's a loan. You see, God created it. God owns it, and he loans life to us, and he can give it, and he can take it away. It's his. And so he has the prerogative to give and take life, but we don't. Scripture makes that clear. The sixth commandment reads, you shall not murder. So again, biblical perspective, very simple. God's a decider. God's in control of life. He can give it and he can take it away. The second principle of a biblical perspective on life is that life is sacred and beautiful. And that's because we're made in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then in Psalm 139, there's this just incredible several verses where David writes, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So again, biblical perspective, life is precious. God cherishes it. It's his image. And it's his prerogative to give life and to take it, not ours. But as we look at what's happening in our culture today, What's trending concerning life issues is that we live in what's called a culture of death. And the culture of death denies both of these truths. Instead of affirming that all life is sacred and beautiful, the trend is to view life as a threat and to value it only to the extent that it helps me. And instead of trusting God's control over life and death, we're actually usurping or hijacking God's authority and exerting a godlike control ourselves. And so today, every year in the United States, one million babies are aborted. Euthanasia or assisted suicide is now legal in five U.S. states and eight countries. In fact, in Belgium, it's actually legal to euthanize children. And suicide has reached epidemic proportions. Sadly, every year since 1999, more Americans take their lives than the year before. In fact, recently, the suicide rate surpassed the homicide rate, so it is more likely that you will die by your own hand than by the hand of someone else. And the scope and the scale of our culture of death the massive taking of life is completely unprecedented, unprecedented, and in that way, it is completely novel. 
And I think a lot of that's because of modern technology. But if the actual culture of death really is nothing new. You see, man has been devaluing life and usurping God's control over life since the beginning of human history. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus 1 and 2, and we're going to read a story that's actually 3,500 years old, and yet it still is relevant today, and it has insights to our culture of death. Let me give you just a little bit of background for Exodus 1 and 2. It takes place in Egypt. And the Israelites have been living with the Egyptians for several hundred years. You see, they came there when Joseph came to Egypt and actually spared all of Egypt and the surrounding lands from a very severe famine. And as a reward, Pharaoh granted the Israelites the best land in all of Egypt, Goshen. And so Joseph brought his entire family, and the Israelites have been thriving for several hundred years in the land of Goshen in Egypt. And so beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1, we read, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So Pharaoh decides to enslave the Israelites, but as we keep reading, we see that his plan backfires. In verse 12 we read, but the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And then skipping to verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that a baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, oh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives even arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So then in Exodus chapter 2, we read that a Hebrew couple has a son. But instead of just throwing him in the Nile, his mother comes up with this ingenious plan, and she makes a floating basket, and she puts it among the reeds along the Nile riverbank. And so picking up the story in verse 5, we read, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then the baby's sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, you may ask, well, 
How does this relate to us today? And some of you may have noticed some of the parallels already, but let me just point some of them out to you. You see, Pharaoh viewed the Israelites as a threat and their babies as something to fear, and we do the same thing today. You see, Pharaoh should have viewed those babies as a blessing. Because if you remember, God said to Abraham, the father of the Israelites, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And for the several hundred years, the Egyptians had been experiencing God's blessing because they had God's chosen people right in their own backyard. And as they blessed the Israelites, so the Egyptians were blessed. And so Pharaoh had this golden opportunity for blessing, but instead he chose man's perspective, not God's perspective, and he saw them as a threat. How do we do this today? Well, according to the Guttmacher Institute, four out of every 10 women with an unintended pregnancy actually gets an abortion. And if you look at the reasons for abortion, almost every single one is fear-based. Three-fourths say they can't afford a child. Three-fourths say that having a baby would interfere with work, school, or the ability to care for dependents. Half say they don't want to be a single parent or are having problems with a husband or partner. And I've talked to friends who've had abortions, and they say, Julie, you have no idea how crippling the fear is. You feel so incredibly desperate, like there's nowhere you can turn, there's nobody who will really help you, and you can't see a way out of a really dark tunnel, and I get that. But increasingly, it's not just the women who have the abortions who are succumbing to fear. It's the people around them. Often, it's a boyfriend or a partner. Studies say that as many as 64 to 67% of abortions involve coercion. Again, it can be the father of that child, but sometimes it can be your own family. A woman named Julie Woodle said this about why she aborted. My parents locked me in the house for two weeks and took away the phone. My parents told me I was to get an abortion. They told me not to tell anyone I was pregnant. And two weeks later, they drove me 240 miles to get an abortion. Now, I don't know why Julie Woodle's parents responded this way, but I do know why some parents respond this way, especially Christian ones. And so often, it's that we as parents are so ashamed to admit the moral failings of our children. And so we figure we can make it go away. We can hide the sin. And daughters are often too afraid to admit their moral failings to their parents. And so they want to hide that sin. James 5, 6 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I just want to encourage you, when you're in those desperate situations, everything inside of you will want to tell you to hide. But I want to encourage you, give your parents a chance. Give the church a chance. There are people here who love you, and your parents love you, and they want to help you and support you. And do you know that according to the Elliott Institute, eight out of 10 women who abort say they wouldn't have aborted if only they had gotten support. We want to help you. Give us a chance. But fear isn't just driving the abortion industry. It's prevalent in other areas of our culture of death. 
The reasons people seek euthanasia, they're fear beast as well. Fear of increased pain, they give as a reason. Fear of suffering indignity, fear of losing control or mental faculties, fear of being a burden. And suicide, we know the number one cause of suicide is depression, right? But underlying depression, psychologists tell us, is fear and anxiety. In fact, one writes, depression is pain directed against the self, and it can be seen as the final battlefront against fear. So again, viewing life as a threat and giving into fear is driving this culture of death. But another characteristic that our culture of death shares with the story of Pharaoh and Moses is it just like Pharaoh devalued the lives of human babies and assumed this godlike control over them, so we do the same thing as a culture today. You see, as we read this story, we don't get any sense that Pharaoh had any qualms about ordering the slaughter of thousands and thousands of Hebrew babies. But if you understand Pharaoh's view of life, it kind of all makes sense. You see, Pharaoh thought that he was God and that he was important and his life was not expendable, but basically everybody else was because you exist only to serve Pharaoh. And so if it ser served his purposes as Pharaoh to slaughter thousands of babies, well, then so be it. The same low view of life, shockingly, is very present today. If you visit an abortion clinic, you will likely be told a fetus is an unviable tissue mass, and therefore there is nothing morally wrong with abortion. You see, an unborn baby is not a human being fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator. It's just a tissue mass. And friends, I want you to see an image of a fetus at only 12 weeks old. And I just ask you, does that look like a tissue mass? Or does it look like a miracle in the making? You see, at this early stage, the baby's profile is complete. The brain is fully formed, and the baby can also feel pain. The baby may even suck his thumb. Hairs on the head and fingers and toes have developed soft nails. The baby can and does sometimes cry silently. It was a fetus just one week older than the one pictured here that forever changed Abby Johnson's life. You see, Abby was the director of a Planned Parenthood clinic. And for eight years, she believed she was doing women a great service by providing them safe abortions. But then one day, in September of 2009, she was asked to assist in an ultrasound-guided abortion. She describes the experience. As I took the ultrasound probe in hand and adjusted the settings on the machine, I argued with myself, I don't want to be here. I don't want to take part in an abortion. No, wrong attitude. I need to psych myself up for this task. I took a deep breath and tried to tune into the music from the radio playing softly in the background. It's a good learning experience, I told myself. I've never seen an ultrasound-guided abortion before. Maybe this will help me when I counsel women. Besides, it'll just be over in a few minutes. I could not have imagined how the next 10 minutes would shake the foundation of my values and change the course of my life. I was expecting to see what I'd seen in past ultrasounds. Usually, depending on how far the pregnancy was and how the fetus was turned, I'd see first a leg or the head or some partial image of the torso and would need to maneuver a bit to get the best possible image. But this time, the image was complete. I could see the entire 
perfect profile of a baby. It looks just like Grace, I thought. Surprise, remembering my very first peek at my daughter three years before, snuggled securely in my womb. The image now before me looked the same, only clearer, sharper. The detail startled me. I could clearly see the profile of the head, both arms, legs, and even tiny fingers and toes. Perfect. And just that quickly, the flutter of the warm memory of Grace was replaced with a surge of anxiety. What am I about to see? My stomach tightened. I don't want to see what's about to happen. Thirteen weeks, I heard the nurse say, after taking measurements to determine the fetus's age. Okay, the doctor said, now just hold the probe in place during the procedure so I can see what I'm doing. The cool air of the exam room left me feeling chilled. My eyes still glued to the image of this perfectly formed baby. I watched as a new image entered the video screen, the cannula. A straw-shaped instrument attached to the end of a suction tube had been inserted into the uterus and was nearing the baby's side. It looked like an invader on the screen. It looked wrong. It just looked wrong. My heart sped up, time slowed. I didn't want to look, but I didn't want to stop looking either. I couldn't not watch. I was horrified but fascinated at the same time like a gawker as he drives past some horrific automobile wreck, not wanting to see a mangled body, but looking all the same. My eyes flew to the patient's face. Tears flowed from the corners of her eyes. I could see she was in pain. At first, the baby didn't seem aware of the cannula. It gently probed the baby's side, and for a quick second, I felt relief. Of course, I thought. The fetus doesn't feel any pain. I had reassured countless women of this as I'd been taught by Planned Parenthood. The fetal tissue feels nothing as it's removed. Get a grip, Abby. This is a simple, quick medical procedure. My head was working hard to control my responses, but I couldn't shake an inner disquiet that was mounting to horror as I watched what was happening on the screen. The next movement was a sudden jerk of a tiny foot as the baby started kicking as if it were trying to move away from the probing invader. As the cannula pressed its side, the baby began struggling to turn and twist away. It seemed clear to me that it could feel the cannula, and it didn't like what it was feeling. And then the doctor's voice broke through, startling me. Beam me up, Scotty, he said lightheartedly. He was telling her to turn on the suction. You see, in an abortion... The suction isn't turned on until the doctor feels he has the cannula in just the right place. I had a sudden urge to yell, stop, to shake the woman and say, look at what is happening to your baby. Wake up, hurry, stop them. But even as I thought those words, I looked down at my own hand holding the probe. I was one of them performing this act. My eyes shot back to the screen again. The cannula was already being twisted and turned by the doctor. And for the briefest moment, the baby looked as if it were being wrung like a dishcloth, twirled and squeezed, and then it crumpled and began disappearing into the cannula before my eyes. And the last thing I saw was the tiny, perfectly formed backbone sucked into the tube, and then it was gone, and the uterus was empty, totally empty. I was frozen in disbelief. I was too stunned and shaken to move. My hand was on the patient's belly, and I had the sense that I had just taken something away from her. With that hand, I had robbed her. And my hand started to hurt. I felt actual physical pain. 
And right there, standing beside the table, my hand still on the weeping woman's belly, this thought came from deep within me, never again, never again. See, we can deny that a baby inside his mother's womb is a human being and is fearfully and wonderfully made by a creator who loves him or her. But it doesn't change the reality. I had a friend who had an abortion when she was in college, and she had convinced herself that the life growing within her was just a tissue mass. But she told me that when she was done with the abortion, she was put on this gurney and she was wheeled into this recovery room and along the one wall of the recovery room were four other women on gurneys who had just had an abortion and then on the adjacent wall were four other women on gurneys who had just had an abortion. And she said, you know what was so strange, Julie? Is that every single one of us were crying. And I'm not talking we were politely, silently crying. We were sobbing, like gut-wrenching, shoulder-heaving sobs. You see, as Blaise Pascal once said, we know the truth not only with reason, but by the heart. Again, we can deny that an unborn baby is made in God's image and is precious in his sight, but I think deep down inside, every single one of us knows the truth. Even so, this devaluation of life has infected almost all of society. It is so pervasive. And it's not just the unborn we're devaluing. We're also devaluing infants, the elderly, the chronically sick, those with handicaps, those with birth defects, basically anyone whose life inconveniences us in any way. And once you devalue life, once you devalue human life at any stage of development, you basically devalue that life at every stage of development because you're denying the basic truth that human life has inherent worth. And so once you start devaluing the life of the unborn, you start down a slippery slope. And so today, now some are suggesting that infanticide is okay, that we can kill newborn babies. And it's not just in China where it's legal. Two years ago, a group of medical ethicists linked to the University of Oxford in England wrote an article suggesting that it's okay to kill newborn babies. These ethicists argued that newborns, like the unborn, are potential persons, not actual persons, because newborns are oblivious to the value that their lives have. They are morally irrelevant, these ethicists argued, so killing them is an acceptable moral option. But the slippery slope doesn't end there. According to supporters of euthanasia, it's okay to kill someone as long as they're terminally ill and they give their consent. Interestingly, studies have shown that when the terminally ill and their families get the support that they need, the demand for euthanasia eva almost evaporates. But when society legalizes euthanasia, essentially what we're telling the sick is that you're too much of a burden, would you please die? And eventually, that request turns into a demand. And so, according to a 2012 article in Current Oncology, 900 people every single year are killed without their consent through euthanasia. Even children who clearly aren't old enough to give consent are being euthanized. And this caused the author of the article to write, 
The initial intent was to limit euthanasia and assisted suicide to a last resort option for a very small number of terminally ill people. But now some jurisdictions extend the practice to newborns, children, and people with dementia. A terminal illness is no longer a prerequisite. In the Netherlands, euthanasia for anyone over the age of 70 who is tired of living is being considered. Legalizing euthanasia and assisted suicide therefore places many people at risk and affects the values of society over time. And truly, our values have been profoundly affected. You see, before the year 2000, there wasn't one Western country that legalized euthanasia because we understood from our Judeo-Christian foundation that all life is sacred and all life matters to God. All Western countries, that is, except for Nazi Germany. But now, like Nazi Germany, we're deeming certain people unworthy of living. So we're killing them too, the young and the old, those who give consent and those who don't. And friends, given this environment, is it any wonder that suicide is increasing? So you see, if humans have no inherent worth and it's okay to kill the unborn, the newly born, the elderly, the chronically sick, well then what about me? What value does my life have? Maybe I'm just an accident, the result of random evolutionary processes. Maybe even worse, maybe I'm a mistake. I hope you're beginning to see that what's driving this culture of death is not a desire to help women. It is not a desire to relieve suffering. I would suggest it's an insidious, hateful, and yes, even a satanic spiritual force. But in case you're not convinced, let me just share one more characteristic that our current culture of death shares with Pharaoh's slaughter of the Jews. And that's genocide. You see, just like Pharaoh targeted the Jewish people for elimination, so today our culture of death is targeting certain groups of people for elimination by means of abortion. First, we're eliminating those with genetic defects. Right now, a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome is a virtual death sentence. According to the most conservative estimates, as many as 65% of women who get a prenatal Downs diagnosis, abort their children, but there's many studies that suggest the percentage is much higher than that, more like 93 to 98%. But it's not just those with genetic defects that we're eliminating, we're also eliminating or at least severely reducing certain races, especially in the United States. The women who are most likely to have an abortion in the United States are black women aged 18 to 24, in fact, according to the Guttmacher Institute, a black women are five times more likely to have an abortion than a white woman. And this is not by accident. It's part of a very intentional plan. If you study abortion and how it developed in our country, it's a very intentional plan that began in the early 1900s with Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. You see, Margaret Sanger was a racist and a eugenicist, 
And she wanted to purify the human race, much like Adolf Hitler, and she determined the best way to do that was to get rid of poor black babies. So what she did is she put Planned Parenthood clinics very strategically in black neighborhoods, and today, 80% of Planned Parenthood clinics remain in minority communities. But Margaret Sanger was very shrewd, and so she actually deceived and recruited black pastors to mask the true intent of her plan. She wrote, the minister's work is important because we don't want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is just the man who can straighten out that idea. Since 1973, when abortion was made legal, as this chart will show you, hundreds of thousands of African Americans have died of AIDS, violent crime, Accidents, more than a million have died of cancer, more than two million have died of heart disease, but a staggering 13 million have been killed by abortion. In fact, in 2013, the number of abortions among African-American women exceeded the number of live births by six and a half thousand. Friends, there are certain areas of this country where we kill more babies before they see the light of day than we deliver them live. So like Pharaoh, we as a culture have wrongly viewed life as a threat we've given into fear, we've devalued life, we've assumed godlike control over it, and we've even sought to eliminate certain groups of people. I hope you're seeing that we are at a crisis level concerning our culture of death. But what do we, as Christians, as salt and light of the earth, what do we as Christians do living in the middle of this culture of death? How do we cherish life in a culture of death? Well, I've been focusing in the scripture passage on Pharaoh's scheme to kill the Israelites, but I want to turn our attention now to the acts of righteous people to rescue lives. You see, if we want to cherish life in a culture of death, we need to follow the example of the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. If you remember, Pharaoh planned on using those midwives to carry out his murderous plan. But we read that the midwives feared God, and they didn't do what the king of Egypt had ordered. So you see, Pharaoh feared the Israelites. Women who have abortions fear the consequences of having that child. People who commit suicide or euthanasia fear the consequences of staying alive, but the Hebrew midwives, Shipper and Pua, they feared God. They feared God more than the circumstances of this life because they understood that God controls the circumstances of this life. And note what happens to the midwives. It says God rewarded them. He gave them families of their own. In contrast, notice what happens to Pharaoh. You see, if you know the rest of the story, you know that Moses comes back as the deliverer of the Israelites. And Pharaoh, because he's so proud and he won't let the Israelites free, he won't let them out of bondage, God sends ten plagues on the Egyptian people and then Pharaoh's entire army is drowned in the Red Sea. And I've talked to a number of people, enough women who have, committed, who have had abortions, and they said, Julie, you have no idea how desperate that I felt in that situation. You have no idea how hard it is to trust God. And you know what? I don't. 
but God does. And I just want to remind you in this story, remind you what happened just before Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea. You see, right before they're drowned, the Israelites are on this small plot of land. And on one side is the Red Sea. And on the other side is Pharaoh's army barreling down on them. And they thought they were going to be killed. And they cried out to God. And they said to Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Why did you bring us here to die? And Moses says to them, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And so I urge you, trust God in your desperation. Trust him. You see, the irony of usurping God's authority and taking matters into our own hands is that we think it will make our life better. We think it will reduce suffering, but it always makes it worse and it always increases suffering. Abby Johnson thought she was helping women by providing safe abortions, but the truth was she was robbing them of their progeny, and she was contributing to the deaths of thousands of innocent human lives. My friend who had an abortion in college, she felt like she was solving the problem of an unplanned pregnancy, but she said, Julie, what I really did is I created this problem of this incredible grief over the loss that I can never recover. And I've talked to so many women who talked to women who've had abortions and do ministry with them. And they said, Julie, you have no idea the incredible amount of pain that these women feel. And often they suffer silently. And I want to encourage you tonight, if that's you, God wants you to experience healing. He wants to forgive you. He does forgive you. But I just want to warn you, ladies, if you think you're going to solve the problem, men, if you think you're going to solve the problem, of an unintended pregnancy, you're lying to yourself. It will only create a worse problem that you will live with the rest of your life. And I think so often we look at suicide and we think that's just a painless escape. I corresponded with a woman recently who eight years ago, her son committed suicide. And she said, Julie, it was such a horrific act and I live with it every single day. You see, violating God's purposes, violating his will and his plan, always has painful circumstances. Yes, you can be forgiven, but there are natural consequences because God created a moral universe. Yes, God will forgive your sin, but there will be painful consequences And really, this is all it means to fear God. We don't use this term very often. But all it really means to fear God is to believe that God is sovereign and that his ways are best and believe that violating his purposes will produce worse results than submitting to them. I had a friend, Kristen, who 27 years ago found out that the baby she was carrying had Down syndrome. And immediately the doctor said to her, let's go get an amniocentesis, we'll confirm the diagnosis, and then you can get an abortion. But you see, my friend Kristen feared God. And she and her husband Wayne decided that's not what we're going to do. We're going to keep this baby and we're going to trust God for the outcome. And the doctors and the nurses, she told me, Julie, you would not believe the pressure we were under. It was incessant. One time in just one visit, 
I was asked four times to get an amniocentesis and to have an abortion. That is the solution of the world. But she said, you know, Julie, I didn't think it was fair just because my dreams for my daughter were dashed. I didn't think it was fair to dash my daughter Hannah's dreams. And do you know today, God has used Hannah remarkably in her own mother's life. And she is a different person today than she would be without Hannah. And actually through Hannah and serving her community, Kristen found God's call on her life. See, my friend Kristen is now the ex executive director of a care net in Wisconsin. And she has a wonderful ministry, reducing the loss of life through abortion. And I know Hannah, and she's one of the most loving and effusive people I know. She is not a mistake. And so I encourage you today, follow the example of Shipra and Thua. Fear God, not man, not life circumstances. Trust God to be the decider. I also want to encourage you to act. You see, if we're going to cherish life in this culture of death, we not only have to follow the example of Shipra and Pua, we also need to follow the example of Moses' mother and his sister. You see, they did everything they could, used every resource they could, their ingenuity to rescue Moses. And we need to do the same thing. We need to engage in a rescue mission. My friend who had an abortion in college, now every Saturday, whenever she can, she goes to the abortion clinic and she stands outside in hopes of being able to counsel some women not to make the same mistakes she made years ago. And she's had the opportunity on several occasions to actually take a woman who was planning on having an abortion and instead take her to a crisis pregnancy center where then she can receive the support she needs and carry the baby to full term. And I know some of you are thinking, I could never do that. Well, you know what? God doesn't call all of us to do that. But I truly believe that he calls every single one of us, followers of Jesus Christ, to do something, to be involved in some way. And so we actually have these books, Why Pro-Life by Randy Alcorn. We have hundreds of copies of this book, and they're available in the lobby at the Moody table if you stop by. And in the back of this book, there are 15 ways that you can be involved in the pro-life movement, ways that you can engage in a rescue mission. And so we ask that you come back there, pick up a book, and then leave us your email. And the reason we ask that is we want to connect with you. We want to let you know when there's pro-life events in your area. We want to share your stories of ways that maybe God has used you to rescue life. And you'll also get a copy of my newsletter so that you can stay informed about issues like this, so that together we can engage in a rescue mission and extend God's kingdom on earth. Also, as we mentioned earlier in the service, I'm going to be back in two weeks with Reverend uh, Bob Vandenbosch, and we're going to talk about how we can make an impact with moral issues simply by exercising our right to vote. And I know this has become somewhat out of vogue among evangelicals, but it is a tool that God has given us, and we are going to stand responsible someday for how we use the tool of our right to vote in this country to make a difference. And so I hope you'll come back in two weeks. I think uh, in your weekly welcome, there's information. You can RSVP for that event. Again, that's Saturday, September 13th. And lastly, I just want to say a quick word to those of you who right now 
may just be feeling the weight of a decision that you made in the past and feeling an awful lot of grief over that. Author and speaker Becky Pifford tells of a story of a Christian woman who came to her after she had spoken one time and the woman was just in tears because of an abortion she had had many years before. You see, when she and her husband uh, were younger, they were youth directors at their church and before they got married, they became sexually involved. She got pregnant and because she was too ashamed to admit her failure to her church, she got an abortion. And she writes, or she told Becky, she said, my wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride, beaming in innocence. But do you know what was going through my head as I walked down that aisle? All I could think to myself is, you were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are, but I know what you are, and so does God. You've murdered an innocent baby. You see, this was years after this woman had the abortion. This was years after her wedding day. She now had four beautiful children, but she still couldn't forgive herself, and she still hadn't received Christ's forgiveness for the sin that she had committed. This is what Becky Pippert told her. She said, Dear friend, this isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second. You see, every single one of us, aborters and non-aborters alike, have contributed to the death of the only innocent person who's ever lived, Jesus Christ. And don't you think that if God can forgive me and he can forgive the rest of us for contributing to the death of his own son, that he can forgive you for what you did? Reportedly, the woman stopped crying at this point and said, you're absolutely right. If the worst thing any human can do is kill God's son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, even my abortion, not be forgiven? Friends, this morning, a campus pastor is going to come up and give you just some tangible ways that you can respond to what you've heard this morning. And I just really want to encourage you, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, if right now, perhaps you've never experienced his forgiveness or you're not able to forgive yourself for something that you've done, whether it's an abortion or something else, would you respond? Don't turn a deaf ear to what God is saying to you this morning. God loves you. He wants to be in relationship with you. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could enter into right relationship with him. He died for us while we were still sinners. You don't have to clean up to come to God. He loves you just the way you are. And he invites you to come. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you loved us so much that you died a horrific death on our behalf. Lord, that even though sometimes we don't feel like we matter, that we matter to you. Lord, I thank you for your incredible, extravagant love. And Lord, for those of us who have experienced that love and it's transformed our lives, Lord, would you help us to be 
ambassadors of your truth and love. Lord, help us to extend your kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.